Pluto Press is one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. Sick of Amazon dominating the audiobook market, they have developed a new list of audiobooks for some of their most popular titles, now available to buy directly from the publisher. Pluto Audio includes the classic Lost in Work by Amelia Horgan, a book that Grace Blakely called Fascinating and Absorbing, a corrective to the widespread view that anyone can find fulfilment through their job. And also The Brutish Museums by Dan Hicks, which was one of the New York Times best art books of the year, and which helped spur museums across the West into returning stolen artefacts to their countries of origin. If you buy at least one audiobook from plutobooks.com before the end of December, you are in with a chance of winning one of three sets of the entire list. Go to tiny.one forward slash PTO audio to discover Pluto Audio and download groundbreaking radical ideas to listen to on the go. You are now listening to Macro Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you'll need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at, first, the impact of the price cap on Russian oil imposed yesterday by the G7, the EU and Australia. Second, warnings that Britain is sleepwalking into a food supply crisis from the National Farmers Union. And finally, the ending of an experiment in the four-day working week. For a first story this week, I want to look at the impact of the price cap and ban on Russian oil exports imposed by the EU, the G7 and Australia after agreement over the weekend. The EU, the G7 and Australia have agreed a cap of $60 a barrel for Russian oil, which means they're going to refuse to pay more than that price for any oil imported into their countries by anyone and also at the same time insist that no insurer or credit company, company providing loans to anyone shipping oil, can sell the oil for any more than that price. That's the really significant bit of this. There's a certain amount of tankers out there that are registered with EU countries, Greece say, um, that carry Russian oil or would like to carry Russian oil, but it's the bit that really matters is when you say the insurers, which are often based in G7 countries, think Lloyds of London, without which you can't really put a ship to sea. Obviously, it's a risky business. You need the insurance. If those insurers are being told they can't insure ships unless the oil is sold at this cap or below, then that's potentially a serious restriction on Russian oil. Now, Russia has said, and Russia, by the way, is the world's second biggest oil producer. Russia has said it will halt sales entirely uh, to countries that are actually implementing the cap. We'll see how that plays out. What's happened as of this morning is a traffic jam has built up in the Black Sea near Turkish waters through the very narrow straits of the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus, where Turkey is insisting that ships entering and coming in and out of the Black Sea have to show their proof that their insurance is up to date uh, as a side effect of this ban coming into play. The price of oil has actually risen uh, as of this morning and as of yesterday because traders reckon that the major effect of the cap and the ban will be to disrupt supplies and therefore the price, if not now and certainly in the future, will actually increase because there'll be less oil around. OPEC Plus, meanwhile, so that's OPEC with Russia 
pressure added, the organisation of the major petroleum exporting countries have said that they will continue to restrict their output of oil in an attempt to keep the world price high. At the minute, the price of uh, Brent crude oil, that's the very light sweet, in other words, very sort of, not very sticky, not very sulfuric, really quite high quality oil you get out of the North Sea is about $84 a barrel. The price of Russian Urals oil is about $64 a barrel. So the cap is somewhat below the world price currently of Russia. They'll be losing money relative to world price if it is successfully implemented. It's actually quite hard to see how this is going to end up. What we've seen over the last year is a switch by Russia to countries, particularly like China and India, who continue to be major importers of Russian supplies, including oil, including gas. Between those two, they're basically the biggest single markets Russia now has. And that's kept the supply of funds into Russia. And actually, the economy has been, to the surprise of magazines like The Economist, actually been pretty robust over the course of this year, despite the fact you're fighting this war and you have the sanction all the rest of it. So what comes out of this ban might be, the ban and the price cap might not be quite the impact that has been anticipated in the EU and G7 and Australia. And you might well find instead that the pressures towards deglobalization, towards countries pulling out of the kind of dollar-centered system that we've all had for decades, that most economic activity around the world centers itself in the dollar system, that most imports and exports take place using the dollar as their currency, that you find more and more countries pulling out of this. It's accelerating the breakup of the global system. As of this morning, it's really quite uncertain how this is going to end up, other than causing a certain amount of disruption and quite likely pushing up prices for the foreseeable future. For our next story, we're looking at reports from the National Farmers Union that the UK is, what they say, sleepwalking into a food crisis, a supply of food crisis where we will find ourselves suddenly hit by shortages uh, of basic things that we need to survive. People may have seen already that egg shortages have become uh, pronounced over the last sort of few months or so. What's happened over this year is that harvests have not been uh, good at all, not here in Britain, not across the world. There's the impact of extreme weather, which we can come back to. But there's also been this big surge in increase in prices of some of the things you need to grow food. That's fertiliser, most obviously, which has soared in price on the back of especially uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But also the price of energy. That If you're growing tomatoes in this country, you need a lot of energy to keep them warm so they grow. When you have massive increases in the price of gas, electricity, the stuff you need to make sure that this can happen it's a real cost for farmers and they start to, to grow less. It's less profitable uh, for them to do so. They can't make the money uh, that they need to actually grow the stuff. So there's a real crisis emerging in food supply and food production. And that's even before you start to factor in um, the impacts of extreme weather. What you find in the shops is that grocery prices are rising at their fastest rate right now for about 45 years. Food price inflation overall is at 14.6%. Now that's well ahead of the headline figure, which is an average figure for price rises. So in other words, something you can't avoid consuming. Like there's a lot of things you don't have to buy straight away. You can put it off. You can't really put off buying food, particularly the prices of essentials, eggs, milk, butter, butter, whatever it might be. The things that have risen most dramatically over the last year, you can't put off buying. So this is something that you will feel and lots of people will feel very, very immediately. Throw in, of course, at the same time, the great surge on the back of this huge increase in prices and the problems lots of people have facing this cost of living crisis. A huge surge in numbers going to food banks and the problems food banks themselves are having in getting donations and you're getting a very, very nasty uh, situation developing here. 
Looking slightly further ahead, what you find is over the year, the Environment Agency warning about the damage that extreme weather is now doing to harvests uh, in Britain. And of course, you've seen some of this right across the world over the last few years in particular. Um, the price of coffee soaring uh, in the last year on the back of droughts and frosts and various other dramatic events from the weather, from climate change happening in Brazil that are damaging the supply of coffee there and therefore pushing up the global price. But that's happening in this country too. Tomatoes, potatoes, many other basic crops, sugar beets affected by uh, extreme weather uh, conditions there. The impact of the war in Ukraine and Russia's invasion has been that the largest supplier of some essential products for fertilisers, uh, Russia, has been completely disrupted. Russia supplies, you know, it's the biggest supplier of potash, which you need um, for various fertiliser products. It's been completely disrupted over the year. So in the UK, across the world, fertiliser prices have gone through the roof. It's harder to get hold of the stuff. It's harder, therefore, to grow things. The UK is particularly exposed at this point because it now has just a single factory producing uh, fertiliser for the whole country, the other one having closed down. And this issue of self-sufficiency, is it possible for this country to produce enough to feed itself, is one that I think is going to become more pressing. If you look, go back and look at the figures, you find that in the 19, early 1990s, um, the country produced about 85% of the food that it consumed itself. If, fast forward 30 years or so later, you, found that's, you find that's down to about 60% or so. So there's a real problem problem of can we grow enough food to feed ourselves given all these disruptions in the rest of the world, given the disruption to fertilizer, given the disruption to various essential products that we try and buy here. And the answer is actually we kind of can't and we have food systems at home and this is what the National Farmers Union is warning about that are extremely vulnerable now to the kind of extreme weather disruptions and also to supply chain disruptions happening in the rest of the world. Now there are potentially some solutions to this but they're not necessarily going to emerge from from the food systems we have. Very strikingly, that whilst most of us have seen the cost of living crisis over the last year or so as rising prices, a squeeze in our standard of living, the fact that this is caused by fundamental disruptions in essential systems we rely on, the energy system, gas, electricity, the food production system, that these things have been disrupted to becomes for us the problem of rising prices and shortages. It becomes for the companies and the people who control those systems an issue of rising profits and greatly increased wealth. Oxfam had a quite shocking report suggesting that there are now 62 new food billionaires created over the last sort of 18 months or so on the back of rising prices for food and their control and ownership of the companies that also control and own and run those food supply chains. So if you want to do something about this, you have to start to think about how do we relocalize the food supply chains? How do we change the business model that operates in these things from being, we must make profit and it doesn't matter if that involves a shortage and restrictions and high prices into something that says, well, what can we do that returns the profits and the surpluses produced? from making food back into local communities, back into higher wages, for farm workers, for the farm owners themselves, for the people who are actually involved in producing this, and a really fundamental shift in how we make one of our really essential systems for life actually work in the interests of the people rather than the people who are currently own, run and control them. <laughs> 
And for a final story this week, I hope it's something after the gloom and doom of the last two a little more positive, which is the early results from the four-day week trial that's been running in Britain over the last few months, where 70 companies had signed up to the seemingly novel, radical idea that they would implement a four-day week for their staff, but also not cut their wages by 20%. You'd be paid the same amount to do less work. Sounds like an obvious win if you're working. The interesting thing about this study is the early results suggest it has been something of a win for the companies implementing it as well. Now, this shouldn't really be a radical idea. It's a very simple idea. Why not work less? There's nothing set in stone about uh, how long we work for and the kind of days that we work on. That This five-day working week with a few holidays a year is actually quite a recent invention. For most of human history, we didn't live like this. If you go back to medieval Europe, if you go and look at 14th century Britain, um, you find that people would typically work, and agricultural labour in the south of England would typically work 130 uh, days every year. Similar pattern across Europe, similar pattern in agricultural societies in general, that people would work to the rhythms dictated basically by the seasons, by agricultural need, rather than this sort of continual mechanised pace of work that we've been used to in this country and across the world since the Industrial Revolution. And that's the moment where the historic and cultural ways of working people had. The idea that you'd work at harvest time incredibly hard. I mean, people do very long backbreaking work in the fields, but then much of the rest of the time, you would wouldn't be working like this, basically because there's very little need to. This becomes culturally instituted as something that people really cling on to. And if you look at the history of the Industrial Revolution, it's a process, especially in Britain, of breaking people's hold over these old-fashioned ideas of work and how long they work for and imposing something new on top of them. And if you look at the history of the Labour movement, its first political wins in Britain were over precisely that question of the length of the working day, reducing it by law from the up to 14 hours, maybe even longer, that you would find in the early factories in the early 1800s, that people work incredibly long hours, often children working incredibly long hours, enforced by law that you'd work far less than this. And then over time, the win of not having a six-day week with only Sunday, the holy day off, but actually a five-day week, and then standard, a kind of eight-hour day. But all of this is things that we've decided to do. It's not you know, God-given, it's not nature-given, it's not something that arrived and we have to just implement because that's how the world is. It's not too hard to imagine a world in which we potentially take some of the huge gains in productivity, the fact that we're all on average, much more productive when we go out in every hour that we work. We can produce more in every hour that we work than we did 50 or 100 or 150 years ago. You could take some of those gains and just turn it into reduced working time for people. You can see how for society as a whole, that might be something you could do. And plausibly, we could collectively decide how to do this. We could think, okay, instead of just insisting on the productivity gains that we make, and are still making because we're becoming better at how we work over time. This is something capitalism has historically at least been good at doing. Instead of taking those gains as we will just produce more output, GDP, things to buy, we'll say, okay, we'll turn it into us having more free time. We'll just take it as reduced working time for everyone. And we'll organise some of the things that need organising where you have to be there for a certain amount of time. Hospitals need to be open 24 hours. Uh, schools are on a set timetable. And we'll sort out the timetabling issues that are specific to the those important uh, systems uh, separately. But you can at least see in principle that if you drop the idea that you have to be there five days a week, you could reorganise society 
as a whole like this. Now, what's interesting about this study, uh, this experiment or trial on a four-day week uh, run by the think tank Autonomy with researchers from Oxford, Cambridge and Boston universities, is that the 70 firms that signed up to, to this did so in the expectation that they might see not only the idea that you know, their workers are going to be happier because they're having to work less, but potentially they're somewhat more productive. That because they're not doing the five days a week, they're doing four, they'll do things like, and this is what some of the people running the company say, they'll do things like cutting out inefficient meetings. They'll just be generally happier at work. They'll be more inclined to work. They'll go the extra mile, that sort of thing. There's a gain for productivity for the companies involved as well as the fact that you at work are having rather more time to yourself and doing whatever you happen to want or need to do with that than you did previously. It looks like a win-win. The full results from the study aren't going to be out until February. But I think this is a critically important question for us in the wake of the pandemic. We've seen things like the Great Resignation. Lots of people just deciding summer last year to quit their job and try and get a better one. We've seen things like uh, quiet quitting, so-called, where people are saying, OK, I'll, I'll only do the work I'm supposed to do. I mean, it's kind of weird that people were expected to do more than this anyway, but there we are. In China, Tangping, the lying flat movement, the idea that you're not going to slog your guts out because what's the point? Why not make use of the time you have for your own purposes? This is something quite radical and challenging to the notion of work and the idea that work is just something that somebody else imposes on us, tells us what to do and how long to do it. The idea of cracking that open and saying, we can control this, we can collectively or individually decide to do something different, I think is quite a radical one. So it'll be interesting to see what the results are in February. One to keep an eye out for the full write-up. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.